I finished last episode and um, something occurred to me when we were talking about Child of Nature and I thought I'd just include it here now. Uh, this section, the repeat of Child of Nature, the chord sequence here. Almost identical, barring one substitution, to the opening of A Day in the Life. So it gives you an idea of the vintage of that uh, chord sequence. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Yeah. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. Five, 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like we're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 4 Another recommendation I'd like to make. Jason Krupper hosts a superlative podcast called Producing the Beatles. His commentary on George Martin's role in the Get Back project was extremely helpful in my research for the last episode, so please check his work out. As usual, here is a brief recap of episode 3. If you want to follow the story in sequence, please start at episode 1. It's still the morning of January the 2nd, 1969. Three Beatles, John, George and Ringo, have been running through some new material for an hour or so, waiting for Paul to arrive. John had shown George, don't let me down, and now George was attempting to teach John some unfamiliar chord shapes for his song entitled, Let It Down. It's probably just a coincidence that they've both written songs with a similar title. John learns the chords quickly enough, but he's already joking in a passive-aggressive way that it'll take him three weeks to get them right. Of the three Beatles, he is the least versatile, and much of the session's progress will be slowed down by having to teach him parts on guitar or keyboard. It's part of the reason why he repeatedly reverts to playing covers of old 50s tunes or else monotonous riffs. For John though, his lack of musical vocabulary actually aids his ability as a songwriter, allowing for mistakes and happy accidents to become the inspiration for new ideas. For George however, it's an uphill struggle to keep John engaged. 
As we will see, Paul has long since mastered the art of teaching his bandmates new material and getting what he wants by force of his personality. George is far more introverted and less able to get his way and this will become a bone of contention later in the sessions. As interest in his composition wanes, George distracts himself by doing some maintenance on his guitar with the screwdriver, noisily tuning up over John's improvising. He plays a few riffs, a brief rendition of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man by Chuck Berry, and then the Everybody Had a Hard Year section for a new song called I've Got a Feeling, before settling on On the Road to Marrakesh, which is a rewritten version of Child of Nature, a song that would later become the love song Jealous Guy. John had some experience of Marrakesh, travelling there on a whim with actor Victor Spinetti when they were working on his In His Own Right stage show. George tunes up and joins John in this performance and they harmonise well together. Yoko is caught on camera around this time, but John doesn't communicate with her. She is preoccupied reading and seemingly sewing up the pocket of John's, formerly hers, fur jacket. Having settled in a little and warmed themselves up, George pauses to wonder about the setup of the project. He notices the lack of recording equipment. As yet, there aren't even microphones for them to sing into. But as I noted, this seems to be an artistic decision by the production team to show the equipment and the set being added to as the film progresses. Paul's bass has been brought out by the road manager Kevin Harrington. George comments on the set list still taped to the bass from their last live show in 1966. It seems from this that Paul's bass hasn't been in use since that date. George Martin appears and is warmly greeted by George. At this point the Beatles entourage were just there to be called upon if needed. With the project fairly undefined, many people's, including George Martin's roles, were not yet clear. However, the three Beatles run through a version of Don't Let Me Down for his benefit, and it is at this point that Paul finally arrives. The common misconception is that Paul travelled to the Twickenham sessions on public transport, unrecognisable as he was with his thick black beard. Kevin Harrington's book, Who's the Redhead on the Roof?, goes some way to exploding that myth. Kevin points out that he travelled with Paul in his Aston Martin to Twickenham. However, on this first day, Kevin and Mal Evans had to arrive early to set up. So it's possible that Paul did indeed take the tube from St John's Wood, near his home in Cavendish Avenue, changing to an overground train midway and arriving at St Margaret Station, directly opposite the studios, some 40 minutes later. Perhaps there were delays on this day, or perhaps Paul got lost during the changeover. Whatever the case, the audio doesn't capture any reason given for Paul's lateness, so we can only speculate. But let's go back to a comment made by Paul at the end of the last episode, as George talks about the set list on his violin bass. And it's right-handed. <laughs> yeah. Kevin! Although Paul's violin-shaped bass has become indistinguishable from his image and the instrument most closely associated with him, it was not the only bass to appear on Beatle Records. It wasn't even Paul's only violin bass. The bass that George is commenting on 
is his 1963 Hofner 500-1 violin bass, which had been in Paul's possession since October 1963. This was the bass that he played on every album from that point until Rubber Soul in late 1965, and at every live performance until the Beatles' retirement from touring. It seems at this point that the violin bass was also retired from service as Paul switched to a Rickenbacker 4001S bass for recording work in late 1966 and through 1967. During the White Album sessions in 68, Paul supplemented the Rickenbacker with a 1966 Fender Jazz bass and for the single version of Revolution, he played his original 1961 Hofner violin bass, which had been refurbished and repaired at Sound City in London. The 1961 bass makes an appearance in the promotional clips for Revolution, with the strings dampened by what looks like a car windscreen demister pad. The footage of the band taken this day and used in the promotional clip for The Ballad of John and Yoko show Paul playing the 1961 Hofner. And yet, George is reading the set list from the 1963 Hofner to Paul when he arrives. We know this because there is no set list visible on the 61 bass in the footage. What was the reason for the change? Could the clue be in Paul's comment? And it's right-handed. What does Paul mean by this? The 1963 bass definitely isn't right-handed, as can be seen in the infinite number of photos of Paul playing this bass, even up to the present day. Did he mean the setlist was written right-handed? Well, despite being left-handed to play bass, Paul writes with his right hand, so this wouldn't be worthy of comment. Perhaps Paul was remarking that the strap was attached to the bass right-handed. Again, this can't be right. Paul's guitar strap for this bass resembled a dog lead, one end tied around the body under the fretboard and the other end dog clipped to the trapeze tailpiece at the other end. The strap would work either way up. I think it's safe to conclude that either by accident or design, the Hofner has been strung for a right-handed player. Either Sound City have done this or our hapless road managers. One would hope that they understood that Paul was left-handed, so perhaps it was intentional. Is it possible that when Paul switched to the Rickenbacker, he had this bass restrung so that it could be used by John or George? George is pictured with a Burns new Sonic bass during sessions for the Revolver album, but this may have just been on loan. Sound City did let the Beatles road test equipment after all. During White Album sessions, George and John had come into possession of two Fender basses in addition to other equipment that the Fender company had gifted them a right-handed Fender Jazz Bass and a Fender Bass 6, which we'll discuss later. Whether the now right-handed strung Hofner was used on any Beatles session between 1966 and 1968 is unknown. It seems that if George was only reading the setlist from this bass for the first time today, it's unlikely he'd seen the bass in the interim. It remains a mystery why this bass is suddenly right-handed and unusual by its owner. Perhaps the bass was on loan to some unknown person and we've just never heard about it. Paul reverts to the 1961 bass for now and it is not until after the weekend that he's able to play the 1963 one. This too suggests that it was probably taken to Sound City to be restrung really 
emerging with brand new Rotosound True Bass black tape wound strings, which can be seen in Ethan Russell's photographs. Paul mentions Michael Lindsay Hogg would like John and George to turn their amps down. They want to push their amps up into overdrive and, and feel the energy and volume that it generates. Turning down the amps takes away quite a lot of the enjoyment during rehearsals. George points out that Ringo's drums will drown them out if they turn down. John is irritated already. George seems a little perturbed that their conversations are being recorded. A lot is suddenly revealed about the setup now Paul has arrived. Michael is more vocal to having been more or less silent up until this point. Paul is waiting for his 61 Hoffner bass and so claps along while he waits. And there you have it. It's hard to hear, but Paul is actually saying he needs another bass because that one's been strung around the wrong way. How can I get in? John realising his pickup for each verse is in an odd meter and tries to extend it. Ball plugs in his bass. Paul tunes his bass. John thinks they're about a concert pitch, which is pretty good here from John. Sorby calls this the teacher was a looking. It only lasts a few seconds, though George quotes a bit of Chuckberry's Johnny Be Good at the end. John points out the Hare Krishna devotee, Simon Sundra, sitting behind them. John jokingly quotes a line from A Hard Day's Night. Paul responds with the punchline. It's a bit daft in all there, isn't it? Pretty John thinks Ringo up on the riser is unnecessary for a rehearsal. John complaining about the studio space. Three weeks is definitely a number John has in mind for these rehearsals. Paul feeling the need to justify. Paul suggests maybe losing the camera crew for a period to allow them to rehearse the rehearsal. Yeah, and then it's easy to rehearse. Well, we should all sort of be like this out, then. You know. If they all just drift in, we'll just be used to all sort of... Paul suggesting an audience gradually arriving again, the building from nothing concert. I think we should sort of be like this. Until maybe we should like learn like a few that. songs. Yeah, but sort of Ringo should be near us we can just sort of... Maybe we should sit up then we should get a PA in after about two days when we know one and try it like that. Because that's the best bit. Sitting <laughs> on you know, PA is it's great. Yeah, that's gonna be very John toys with the Sun King riff again. Sound in here and 
so even I don't think this is a very acoustically good place. George expresses his concerns about the sound, and Paul half agrees. Have a bit of echo. Well, anyway, anyway, if you can think of anything good on all of that, you know, if you can think of. Since the other Beatles are only agreed on what they don't like, Paul throws it back at them. If they have any good ideas, he'd be happy to hear them. It shows a kind of employee-manager dynamic. We could get a PA like the top ten in Hamburg, you know, on those bins and echoes. George getting nostalgic here for the band's Hamburg days, talking about a bins and echo. Unlike the tape echo units used in the early 1960s, most notably by Hank Marvin of The Shadows, the Binson Echo Rec didn't rely on tape to generate its effect. Binson developed a system using a durable steel band wrapped around a drum, direct driven by a rubber drive wheel, like a high-end record turntable. The steel band would pass multiple tape heads that recorded then played back at different intervals, creating a repeat effect. The Beatles first encountered the warm, thickening effect it had on their vocals at the Top Ten Club in Hamburg. Binson, an Italian company, made much more than just echo devices. They were an electronics business making high-quality amplification and PA equipment. The Binson unit Peter Eckhorn bought for the Top Ten may have been part of a public address system for the club. The Beatles were certainly nostalgic for how they sounded through good quality equipment in that venue. At no point in their touring career did they supply their own PA. They always relied on whatever was provided by the concert hall or even stadium. This of course led to them and their audiences barely hearing a thing above the screams of their fans. The Ecorec on its own was not a cheap product to buy, costing around £140. By contrast, Paul's Hofner bass cost him £60 new. It's a clear sign that Eckhorn was investing in his club to attract the best bands. The Beatles will eventually get their Binson Echo Rec, as we will hear later. This could be an authentic Italian Binson unit. The Pink Floyd famously used these on stage and in the studio to great effect. But it's also possible that they got hold of a rebadged version called the Echo Master, sold in the UK by the Beatles' favourite music shop, Sound City. John plays some rhythm guitar. It's just some hammered on chords like he plays in Revolution. Sorb has it down as Buddy Holly's Mailman Bring Me No More Blues, but I don't think it is. Do you want to sing with you? No, 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 sorry. John offers a chance for Paul to demo some new material. Paul, not trying to appear over bossy, declines. There's history here. Paul has learned how to keep John engaged in a project. Album sessions have traditionally started with the band working on John's songs first. John plays the intro to I've Got a Feeling. Paul fiddling with his amp overloads it. George inquires about the chords. Paul is calling out the changes. I've Got a Feeling is the first full and equal collaboration between John and Paul since Baby You're a Rich Man in 1967. 
It was assembled from two different songs, one by each composer. John had demoed his Everybody Had a Hardier section in late 1968 on cassette and was filmed in the garden at Kenwood singing it with Yoko that December for her art film number six, Rape. His section is a litany of observations, each beginning with the word everybody. Following his divorce, drug bust and Yoko's miscarriage, Lennon reflected on his hard year, with alternating positive and negative statements. Hard year, good year, hard year, good time, socks up, foot down. In 1968, he had based the tune around a simple two-chord oscillation played in the finger-picking style taught to him in India by folk singer Donovan. John and Paul had got together to write some new material at Paul's Cavendish Avenue property in advance of the Get Back project commencing. This appears to be the only product of that writing session. Paul would be captured on the Nagara recordings later in the sessions complaining that Yoko's presence had made it very difficult for the two to create together effectively. The cumulative effect of two different song sections eventually working simultaneously is the unique selling point of the song. Paul's section is a vague statement of his newfound love for his partner Linda. All that I was looking for was somebody who looked like you, he sings. The rest of the lyrics are disjointed and mainly only seem to be chosen because they rhyme, but they create the atmosphere of the emotions felt when love is still new. His lyrics also alternate between positive and negative, with his oh yeahs and oh noes. The two song sections are sung over the same two chord pattern, which may have suggested that they could be sung at the same time. The idea isn't new and was often used as a device in musical theatre, where two characters would intertwine different songs together from different sides of the stage. It was used in West Side Story, the soundtrack of which Paul was known to have in his teenage years. Alternatively, it could have been inspired by the Morecambe and Wise sketch. But what do you like on counter melody? Oh, excellent, excellent. What is it? <laughs> well, you sing one tune, we sing the other. Oh, you see, like a counter melody. We'll try. Uh, Won't you sing a younger melody like my mother sang to me? <laughs> oh, I know. Do you know it? No, but you don't. <laughs> <laughs> singing yeah. won't you play a simple melody yes we're singing the counter melody that goes like this a one two a beautiful dream won't you have me a dream won't you play me some rap oh just play well, what am i singing then won't you, you play, play a simple melody while you're singing one two a musical dream i shall have you a dream yeah, won't you play? It, yeah. have you got I've it, got it yeah. all right wait a minute right. we'll take it again good luck a one a two Musical dream, I said you had a dream, and what you went. Whoa, 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 you play a simple melody. I get it now, try again. One, two, and musical dream, I said you had a dream, and whoa, whoa, you play a simple one. I tell you what, I tell you what, you try it on your own. On my own. For a little while, then we'll come in. Won't you play a simple melody? Like my mother sang to Musical Dream and said, You're having a dream and want to play me some rap. Whoa, 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 whoa,
can't do it, you know. No, it, no, it's not that. It's you put me off the heat. <laughs> <laughs> you put me off, you see, you fellas, eh? Are we? Yeah. Well, um, I tell you what, then. What? You put your hands over your ears yeah. and look over in that corner. That's a good idea. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> right. Are you ready now? Yeah. Right. A one, a two. Musical beat. Set your hand on your feet. Set your hand on your sombra. When are you ready? Whilst this idea is a good one, it's somewhat let down by the lack of quality in its component parts. Paul's melody in this section is driven by the movement in his voice. It's bluesy, but it reaches some impressive high notes in the middle section. John's vocal is almost spoken, but has the effect of bringing you back down to earth. The opening riff is an open A chord with an added high A note, hammering onto a D sixth chord in a style similar to what James Burton later did on the songs Suspicious Minds and In the Ghetto for Elvis Presley. This riff, I'm sure, came from McCartney as it resembles the guitar phrase that ends each verse of his song, Junk, demoed at George's house on the same day as John's Child of Nature. The fact that John is using the same trick for his other new song, Dig a Pony, seems to be an indication that this is a new technique that he's learned and is applying elsewhere. John's section is joined back to Paul's in a sequence of descending and ascending diminished chords, reminiscent of Dylan's Rainy Day Women, numbers 12 and 35. That screaming middle section is also impressive because Paul is playing the busiest piece of bass playing in the whole song at the same time. Finally, this song will feature an infamous microtonal crying lick from Harrison, which from the word go becomes a source of aggravation between him and McCartney. John's having a go at the descending phrase that Paul wants. They pause to go over this rather than just run through the whole song. The tape cuts off to a brief jam. Time has obviously passed. Got something to do at the end that uh, makes it interesting. Everybody John talking you about the counter melody. Go for it. Tell him how you did that bit you were doing it. Okay, John. For that. So it was just them, very slow. Just yeah. dun, dun, dun. Still going over that descending riff. Paul demos it on John or George's guitar. John and Paul talk about getting a double necked bass and guitar. Maybe that's so that Paul can play some lead parts. Bass and drop out, yeah. It's swapping. If you get the, uh, if you, when they do well, the copy, you should leave the copy at um, the copy they make with Ron Cass or somebody. And bring me back this one and the. George talking to Glyn Johns. We'll cover him later. Presumably, this is about the Jackie Lomax album. Ron Cass met John and George in New York in a unique business meeting aboard a Chinese junk in May 1968. 
He was appointed to head Apple Records in the US. He would eventually be ousted by new manager Alan Klein. He'd go on to marry Joan Collins, but unfortunately he died at the age of 51 due to complications from his drug addictions. When the tape returns, the song is in better shape. Ringo's part is sorted. John Adlibs. Paul thinks he's written a new part. Paul and John suggest a pretty corny ending. Nine, take one. John directs George to play lead all the way through. Playing round it all through it, so we end up with just me doing that. Yeah, you know, you've been doing those breaks, but you've got to... Yeah, I'm not doing Okay. I just did so to get the length. So all I was doing for that, I'll show you what I was doing exactly. It doesn't matter what you play, but it's just like, it's the rhythm of what I was doing that's the only thing I... Okay, so it's in another key. Pulls back on acoustic, trying to demonstrate the lead break again. Just, just coming down, it was. And it does, just in that break. So, do you want to try that? George comments on the simplicity of the song. Paul giving George suggestions he won't eventually use. A clue that Paul pictures the guitar part a bit like Pete Townsend style, all power chords. It's very easy to interpret Paul's behaviour during these sessions as overbearing and bossy. One only has to look at how much frustration George encounters trying to get the band to play his songs to have a real understanding of how assertive you have to be. John can write sophisticated material, but he is slow to pick up other people's songs, so Paul has a lot of heavy lifting to do. Paul has a further obstacle with his instrument, it's nearly impossible to use a bass to show a guitarist what to play. Paul calls out chords as he sings the song, often using them in place of lyrics. Occasionally he'll borrow a guitar and demonstrate a part upside down, or sing a guitar part that he wants. This tends to mean that Paul has already worked out whole arrangements in his head before bringing them into the band. And here we find where Paul conflicts with George. George would rather work out his own parts, he is capable of playing what Paul is vocalising, but often you will hear that he's on his way to the part used in the finished song, only to be waylaid by Paul's vision. 
In the Beatles' early days, George's chord inversions created a distinctly jazzy edge to the Beatles' sound. Classy minor sixth and major seventh chords gave them a sophisticated edge that their peers just didn't have. Unlike John, George doesn't need direction, but time and again you will hear Paul trying to steer him in the wrong direction. This will reach a flashpoint on the 6th of January. It's the most complete song they have so far, and it's sounding pretty good already. However, they haven't worked out how to get back from John's part yet. I'll do the last one. Okay, so George Martin's going to be making an appearance in a second, so we'll leave it here for this time. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.